You've heard us talk about organization and creating a less cluttered home. Well, today is not one of those days. No, today we're giving a voice to the maximalists out there, the free spirits who love to collect and live in more eclectic homes. Daniel Mathis is not a minimalist. He is a collector with passion for finding treasures. He is also not a professional designer. In fact, he's a lawyer by day, but his passion for decorating in his own vintage maximalist style has led to multiple magazine features and the creation of his website, notaminimalist.com. His site and social media are absolutely intriguing. His collections have been featured in Country Living Magazine, Flea Market Style, and Flea Market Home and Living Magazine, and we can't wait to hear his tips and tricks for buying and selling unique pieces. By the end of this class, you will have your PhD in tackling the flea and useful tips for appraising, buying, selling, and displaying special items. Homeschooled is in session. Welcome students. At Homeschooled, we know that becoming a homeowner changes your life in a big way, and we're here to help. Every week, your hosts Aaron Massey and Tracy Pendergast will introduce you to a guest instructor who will teach you to tackle your home projects with confidence. If you're ready to do some homework, you're in the right place. Homeschooled is in session. Now get your ass to class. This episode of Homeschooled is brought to you by Train Residential, the leading global provider of indoor comfort solutions, remote services, and a brand of Ingersoll Rand. For more than a century, Train has provided products and technology that push the boundaries of performance and reliability. Continuing its commitment to provide the best in comfort solutions, Train has launched the Train Comfort Performance Air Filters, an innovative line of filtration products to optimize your HVAC system's efficiency and your home's indoor air quality. These new advanced filters come in a variety of sizes and are available at walmart.com. To learn more about Train, visit train.com residential. Daniel, we are so excited to have you here today. I am such a fan of your Instagram account specifically. Oh, thank you. I feel like anyone that looks at it wants to be your best friend. Do you hear that a lot? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I have people who want to just come over. Yeah. Um, just want to show up at my house randomly and like look around, which is a little bit weird. But uh, and and luckily, I live in an apartment building that's like it's like a secure building, and so I don't I don't mind putting my location out there. But yeah, it's been it's been fun. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting um, energy to attract just people that want to come into your home. But hey, that's that's the beauty of collecting, right? Yeah, yeah. How tall are the ceilings in your place? Yeah, they're they super look like tall. Yeah. They're, they're about fifteen feet, maybe sixteen feet, which you know this building was originally a Montgomery Ward shopping um, department store back in the, oh, I wow. guess, in the 40s, 50s. So it's loft-ish, but it's not actually a loft. I have separated bedrooms and it's not huge, but these ceilings make it feel so, so giant and they're just as tall in my little bedrooms. And so I can go, you know, way up high. I'm really going to miss this because I've been looking, I've actually been house hunting the last year or so, which is kind of ironic because I've had all these photo shoots in my apartment in the last year or so, which has been funny timing because I literally went month to month on my, on my lease right around the time that I started sharing photos on my Instagram. And then I, I kind of had one foot out the door. And then suddenly I had, you know, these requests for, uh, for photo shoots and stuff. And so then it, I had, you know, was kind of forced to perfect all the things that I kind of had, you know, halfway completed kind of like when people go to sell a house and you, you know, you stage it and perfect all those things and then you don't want to move out. It's kind of been 
it's kind of been one of those deals. But yeah, but now you get to start all brand new and fresh with more room, which is yeah, probably... exactly. I I always need more room, never less. So let's start at the beginning. Your Instagram is not a minimalist, and you also have the website notaminimalist.com. What inspired you to start sharing? Well, I just really needed a sort of a creative outlet. I'm an attorney by day, so it's a very non-creative profession. I have always been collecting and interested in sort of design and really just didn't share that anywhere. And so I finally just thought, well, I just want to start putting that out there. And I didn't want to sort of force feed it to my friends on my personal account. I wanted it just to be people who are really interested in that kind of thing. So I decided to to make an Instagram to start sharing those photos. When I thought about, you know, the handle, I wanted it to be something you know, easy to remember, kind of funny, and a bit of a nod to to what I'm doing, which is, you know, I'm I'm not a minimalist. I I've dabbled in minimalism in the past. I'm not. This is not an anti-minimalism uh, thing by any means. So that was that was kind of the genesis of the idea, and and then I just started sharing pictures. So I really didn't have much of a plan. It was really just for fun, and it was really just you know just a creative outlet for me. So I did that, and then. When I started getting requests for photo shoots and all these things, I just thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, go ahead and reserve the web address and just start building a website and maybe I'll do some blogging. And I just started getting lots of questions about the things that I collect. How do you do your composition on your wall displays? What kind of pottery is that? A lot of things that that I, of information that I know that I didn't realize people really had a need you know, we're interested in. So I thought, well, maybe eventually I'll start writing some some blogs and things. That's a work in progress, but hopefully it'll continue to grow. And and right now it's just strictly for fun. I usually say I have a second job that doesn't pay. <laughs> uh, well, we can relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we brought you in basically to teach us today how to live with stuff. I think okay. the overwhelming trend is that you know, a lot of stuff you see out there is that minimalist lifestyle. And we've had some organizers on in the past to talk about how to do that. But uh, now we want to talk about the real world and how to live with stuff when you want to have some stuff. So uh, I think we're ready to get schooled if you're ready to give us some lessons. Well, I mean, it, you know, maximalism and collecting is part and parcel with being organized. I mean, you have to be organized to to have a lot of different things. And I am a very organized person. I'm a little bit, you know, sort of OCD in the sense of I know where everything is. All of my all the things that I have in storage are 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 labeled and sorted. So I there is a method to my madness. It may or may not seem that way, but you know, a couple of tips that I've come up with as people have asked me this over the last uh, year or so in terms of displaying collections. You know, one of the things you'll notice in my in my house is that all of my collections are are together. You know, I'll have a, a I've got several pottery collections. You know, pieces in the hundreds. One of the things that I, I've sort of done. I didn't really realize I did this until I've had to self-reflect. I sort of display each collection as a, a single installation. So it kind of just reads as one object as opposed to a busy assortment of the same kind of things all over the place. It's almost like putting together an outfit, like your cohesive outfit has all different accessories. And then... Um, right. So and, it's not just hoarded. It's very thoughtful and very curated. And if people look at your feed, they'll see that it's 
you're not just like a collector just to have tons of stuff. It's very thoughtful. So what are your thoughts on the current trend of decluttering and how do you think people can benefit from a maximalist lifestyle? Well, you know, one of the things I say is that collecting and being a maximalist doesn't interfere with my lifestyle. It enhances my lifestyle. And so I think if you get to a place where any hobby interferes with your lifestyle, then you need to make a change. And I think that that's where a lot of the purging and organizing and the the whole spark joy movement comes from is that those folks have something that is interfering with their lifestyle. And so I think in those instances, yeah, it's extremely important to to make those changes and, and and to purge and to organize. For me, it's, you know, it's part of who I am to to be a collector and to curate and to want to assemble these collections. And so I fought that for a little while, but I've literally been collecting since I was in the third grade. It's in my genes. And so I think there are a lot of people that have that inclination. Uh, my grandmother has that inclination. That's kind of where I get it from. And so in those instances, it's almost detrimental to try and suppress something that you enjoy doing so much. And so I stopped doing that. So I just kind of embraced it. And I think there's a a different needs for different people. If you're sort of curating things for for many years, it's so fun for the next generation to be able to go through and look at those things. I enjoyed doing that, you know, with the things that my grandparents collected. And it gives me a sense of roots with my family and being able to, to look back at some of the things that have sentimental value and if you're not careful, you'll you lose those things. And I know things are not memories, but you can have a little bit of both. You don't have to keep everything, but I think it's just great to keep some things. It also depends on so many things. For instance, if I lived in Manhattan, I wouldn't be doing this. I can't tr- lug all of this stuff around Midtown or wherever I would be living uh, and, and make that work. I, I strive to maintain my hobby in a way that that doesn't interfere with my lifestyle. So you have a lot of unique, really uh, interesting items. What are your tips for finding kind of the best treasures out there? Where do, where do we go and what types of places do you search for? Well, I think one thing that a lot of collectors and thrifters and antiquing crowd will tell you is that you have to go often. And I will say you need to go anywhere and everywhere. It's really a treasure hunt for me. That's part of the fun for me too. I do not discriminate when it comes to gas stations on the side of the road or wherever it is that that might have something that's interesting because you never know you can be surprised i mean i kind of like the more eclectic junky big antique malls that that have all kinds of vendors you've got vendors who are really trying to make a living at moving product and then you've got sort of hobbyist vendors but that's not to say that you can't walk into a super polished really nice shop and find something really awesome too that that you want. And that's also a bargain because everybody's, one thing I've learned over the years is that everybody's looking for something different. So I'm not like trying to rush in and beat the first person in line because odds are they're looking for something different than I'm looking for. So my favorite places, you know, I said the junkier the antique mall, the better. I also like estate sales. I find not as much there, but uh, you can get really good deals at estate sales. They're fun to go. It's also kind of fun and maybe a, a morbid way to peek into the life of someone who, who was there. My friends and I always joke that, okay, some somebody's going to have a heyday when, we, when we're gone because <laughs> if they like estate sales, they're going to love my estate sale. They're going to love my friend's estate sale. I don't really do garage sales. I know some people really love garage sales. I, I think the the squeeze is not worth the juice on estates, on, on, on garage sales. 
Um, if one's convenient, I'll pop in there. The last few years, I, I like uh, eBay and Etsy, some of the online sources. You know, you're going to pay a little bit more, but if you're building a collection, it's pretty easy to build a collection of what I would call base items. And then to really round it out, you need a few really amazing pieces. And those are harder to find on the street or in the wild, as they say. And you may have to go online to pick up those. You know, some people, you know, Cherish and First Dibs are um, really great curated websites for really amazing pieces, sometimes museum quality pieces. You're going to pay for the convenience of having those pieces already found and, and waiting for you. And if you don't have time to wait, a lot of designers go there for, for that. I'd say for most you know, bargain hunters, that's really not, that's really not where you want to go. Uh, so those are the places that I look and you know, anywhere, everywhere, you got to go frequently. I actually posted recently about this globe that I happened upon that uh, is a, like a 1920s, 1930s aviation globe uh, by DeNoyer and Geppert. I literally wanted it for about 15 years. I think the first time I saw one, it was in a store display in a Ralph Lauren store. I randomly popped into a place here in Oklahoma City with a friend of mine before dinner. We weren't even looking. I wasn't planning to do any serious shopping. And there it was. And it was for about a third of the going rate. So. And what was the scene when you spotted it? Did you jump up and down? I think I said, oh, my gosh, look at that globe. And she <laughs> she did not have the same appreciation for it. And um, I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is such a cool Glow. We were looking, we were standing there looking with her daughter at dried gourds because <laughs> she was going to put them out for the fall and under this table right next to it. I didn't even see it at first. And so I'm like, that is, I've got to have that. And so I, I abandoned her and immediately took it to the front, even got a little bit of a discount on, on that. So maybe that's another tip. You know, a lot of places will bargain with you. And if you have established relationships with them, if you're like me and you go places regularly, that's a one way to, to get a little bit of a discount here and there. And, and don't be shy to, to ask for a reasonable discount. Now, if things are already a really good price, I don't do that. But when I think there's a little room to move, I'm not, I'm not shy about bargaining with, uh, with them. So with this globe, for example, when, there's, when there are pieces that you're looking for specifically and you find one, how do you make sure that it's the real deal? What are you looking for? Well, that's a good question. And there's probably two things that come to mind for that. One is over time, you just develop an eye for it. And one example I have for that is I have a set of identical twin cousins and they're a year older than I am. And everybody, when I'm home, they're like, I don't know if that's Matt or Kevin. Is that Kevin? <laughs> is that Matt? I can't tell. And I'm like, they don't look anything alike to me because I have seen them so for so, for so long that I, I have seen the nuances and the subtle differences in them that they don't look anything alike to me. It's kind of the same thing with vintage and antiques. Over time, you can tell the difference between the look you can tell the difference just by the feel and especially the things that I collect. I know immediately if it's something that I, that, I, that if it's a piece within the, the family of something that I collect just based on the texture of the glazes, the weight it, with pottery, for instance, pottery that was made by hobbyists tends to be a lot heavier. It's, it's much thicker because they're using a lot more product than um, mass marketed uh, companies we're using because if they're making things in volume, you want to use the least amount of product you can because they're trying to cut the cost. So 
mass-produced pottery like McCoy pottery that was super popular in, in the 40s, 50s, 60s tends to be much lighter weight than a piece that a hobbyist uh, made or a piece maybe that was made by an artist that's a much more limited sort of run. So that's those are the those are the sort of tactile visual cues that you can that you learn over time. And then another thing, you just have to study. I mean, you I have books that I will, you know, instead of a magazine, sometimes at night I'll sit and flip through a, a resource book taught that's on either, you know, pottery that I collect or or whatever. And you sort of had this mental impression of certain pieces that maybe are rare or more unusual. And then you're not going to remember it exactly, but there have been a few times where I'm where I'm shopping and I'm like, that looks so familiar. And I'm and then I'll just kind of take a risk on it and then go back and find it in one of my books. A third thing to do if you're not sure about the value of something is I mean, there's not a better place to go than than eBay. Virtually everything that you could possibly want is on is online. And if you take just a minute, I, I often do that. I'll be standing in a store somewhere and I'll pull up eBay and just and just do a quick search and see what things are going for. And you know, if you're I don't buy super valuable things, but if I did, I would be a little more careful about it, obviously, and maybe have something appraised or or something like that. Most of the stuff that I collect, especially if you're collecting things that are pretty inexpensive, why would anybody want to duplicate that? Why would anybody want to go to the trouble of faking a $10 piece of pottery? It's just not, <laughs> it's not worth it. So most of the things, a lot of things that I collect, the odds are it's, it's not um, anything anybody would, would benefit from, from making it counterfeit. But when you get up into the, you know, more museum quality pieces, that's definitely something that you should be more careful about. Right. It sounds like you kind of know what you're looking for before you go looking for it in most instances. Is that accurate? Sometimes. I mean, I think, I mean, I have, you know, maybe a dozen or 20 or so different collections that I'm kind of always watching for, but I'm always looking for something unusual. I mean, one of the things that, that I like about thrifting and antiquing and vintage is that you're able to get a look that is not off the rack, not mass market. It's a little more customized looking. If you're, you know, if you're trying to decorate in a way that feels a little, little more time worn and collected and interesting and not the same thing that everybody else has, I'm kind of always looking for something that's awesome and just different. And so those things catch my eye. And then, but yeah, I'm, I always have, I'm always looking for extra pieces to fit into a collection that I have, you know, some of my collections are pretty well developed. I always have this problem of trying to figure out when am I finished with a collection because I don't really ever finish. I, you know, if I run out of space, I'm, I'm kind of done with that, but I do have, yeah, I've always got something in mind, but I'm also always looking for that, that one thing that's something really different or just really cool that would look great in my, in my place. I was just going to say that, that kind of led to my next question, which is like, when you finish a collection, do you sell it or do you keep anything? Do you do you keep everything you buy or do you sell things as well? You know, things come in and, and they never go out. It's kind of the black hole of, of stuff. So I, I don't sell anything. I'm not a dealer. I've been approached by a lot of people who would be interested in buying things or if they ask if I'm a dealer, but I haven't made that foray yet. Um, it's strictly just for fun for me. Although I do like to buy things that I think are cool and that are a good deal and that I like, but that I don't necessarily want in my apartment. And so I think eventually I'll have to figure something out. I'll either have to buy for someone who is selling or figure out some way to, to move some things. 
And I think when I when I move, I'll I'll probably call some things that maybe I'm tired of and figure out how to to liquidate it. But no, I'm I'm not a seller. I think the last thing I sold on eBay was my bar exam prep books, like in like 15 years ago. <laughs> so, what is your most prized collection? Well, that's a tough one. I probably would say my most prized collection, not because of its value, just because of the time that I've invested in it is is a collection of, of pottery that I don't even have displayed currently. And it's in storage, you know, it's boxed away. Every all the boxes are labeled. I know exactly where it is. I've probably got two or three thousand pieces of of matte white, satin white, uh, mid-century pottery that eventually the plan from for the display is floor to ceiling, built-in wall, you know, built-ins. It kind of becomes almost like a three-dimensional wallpaper in a way. And then you could hang art on front of it. That's probably the one that is my most prized only because I've been collecting that for about 18 years and it's really been a time commitment. My most valuable collection is probably called Ozark Roadside Tourist Pottery and it was made in the 20s in Missouri and also in Oregon. It's become really collectible lately and and that I might be partially to blame for that because it was featured in a couple of magazines. But the values of that have really skyrocketed. It's it's really hard to find. The pieces are really great. I, I have a dealer friend of mine who goes to Round Top every year. They, it sells completely out uh, on the you know on the first day when they're down there. It's just it's just really interesting and really in demand. But I don't have a lot of super valuable things. I mean, that's one good thing about this this is if you can make cool things out of things that are inexpensive. If something happens to it or you have to get rid of it or if you get tired of it, you can just do something else and it's not going to break the bank. And also I think valuable can be defined many different ways. I mean, you're talking about collecting for legacy uh, as one of the reasons why. And that's so cool to me because, you know, if I think of any heirlooms or any type of collections that I'm leaving for my kids, I can't really think of any. Maybe our wedding, like serving stuff, or like mm-hmm. stuff from our wedding. I I can't say I really have anything within my family that's been, you know, handpicked by me and tucked away. And I think that's more valuable than the price tag, um, for sure. I my also... mom has a uh, a Christmas village. Oh, that I love that. It's like one of my favorite things. That's kind of one of an example of something that I think could be like a generational thing. It doesn't have to be necessarily anything overly valuable, right? It it, it can right, be just yeah. kind of something that has sentimental value, and maybe it, you know, maybe and it's a small upon. amount of pieces, or maybe it's a lot of pieces, but you can kind of build it over time, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, my grandfather had a collection of of wheat pennies. I don't know if you've ever even heard of a wheat penny, but there were these pennies, and they had this little wheat pattern on them. I can't remember when they were made, but they're worth more than a penny. Now I think they're worth dollars. And so I I want his wheat penny collection. You know, he collected Civil War things that you would find in the fields. I'm from Mississippi originally, so I'm influenced by, you know, growing up in the South. And and then now I'm influenced by by being here in in sort of the Midwest and and, um, and then having lived in Texas. But but yeah, no, it's not it's not about monetary value at all. It's it's just also just about the time that you invest in in saving those things and that there aren't many of them. You know, it's just it's just neat to have things that that aren't around. And I was a little bit worried about the the you know the millennials, you know, because I'm not sure how many millennials are interested in things. And I've seen a few lately. I think there I think there are some millennials that are in, interested in collecting and interested in 
and older things. Hopefully they'll continue the, you know, they'll, somebody, somebody in that generation will take the baton and, and continue it forward. Right. And also, you know, you're talking about the vintage clothing and everything with our generation. A lot of people are into minimalism and living with less and they kind of blame it on sustainability and going green, but buying reused things and, and shopping vintage is actually one of the most eco-friendly things you can do. It's a great way to decorate. It's a great way to fill your home and be sustainable. And I don't think people remember that often enough. That's exactly right. Yeah. I have modern appliances and modern electronics, but all most of my furnishings are all, you know, things that I'm reusing. Uh, it's, it's very green. If you don't reuse it, it's probably not going to get recycled. It's probably going to the landfill. So, And you talked about um, the penny collection, for example. When you have something that's really specific like that or smaller, have you come across any fun hacks for displaying these like quirky items that don't necessarily hang on their own or, you know, aren't more decorative? Well, that's a good question. And that's something that I kind of had to do some self-examination on too. Frankly, when I started my Instagram, I had never even asked myself like, what is your design style? What are your, how do you do what you do? And so I've kind of had to think about that. And one of the things that's one of the things that I do is that I, I tend to decorate with things that, that on their own, they're pretty insignificant. They don't really make a statement. And so I tend to gravitate towards things that are mundane on their own, but when assembled together, they really make an interesting statement. For example, I have, you know, in my kitchen, I have about 15 of these old wooden clamps that were used in like wood shops. They're not expensive and and they're not particularly appealing if you just hung one on the wall, but all together, they kind of make an almost like an art installation. I know exactly what you're talking about because I have a couple of those in my shop. Yeah, yeah. There's and I knew what they were because I had, you know, wood shop in, in the seventh grade. And uh, so I started picking those up and, you know, they look so great to me all hung together. And everyone's like, well, how do you, how do you do your composition or how do you do your, how did you do your gallery wall? And I don't really have an easy replicable process for that because I just, look at what I have and I look at the space that it's going to go in and I just kind of see it. And then I just put it up there. I don't do a lot of measuring. I just kind of eyeball it. I do a little bit of tweaking, but in looking back, let's say a gallery wall, for instance, or if you're just going to hang um, a random grouping of things on the wall, I guess one of the things that I do in my mind is I, I place the big items first and I kind of find some balance with the larger items. And then I go, I fill in with the smaller items and then if there's a particular color or texture to the items, I kind of also strike some balance with that. I don't want all the touches of color to be on one side. And that's kind of how I do that. And I tweak it. I mean, you know, you, it's not always perfect on the first try. I, it's kind of like tying a bow tie. If I don't get it on the first try, it's going to take me five or six tries. And so it's kind of like you, you just kind of go with it. For smaller items, I mean, I have like um, a really small collection of vintage insect pins. Some of them are from the 20s, 30s. Some of them are newer. I go to Santa Fe every year and I buy one or two in Santa Fe. There are these artists that make them. Santa Fe is one of my favorite places to go. And so I just picked up a little cabinet, curio cabinet. And I actually have these insect pins stuck in really large wasp nests. So they're displayed that way. And I have that cabinet full of small things. Small things, I think, kind of like collections need to be grouped together. It's not as jarring on the eye. 
Uh, one of the things we like to do is we like to ask our guests to create some homework for our audience. I'll let you decide on it, but it could be something as simple as, you know, going out and finding or starting a collection or whatever you want it to be. We like to ask our instructors to give a little bit of a homework assignment for our audience. Okay. Well, yeah, I think, I think my assignment would be similar, kind of what you said in the vein of collecting is to, is to go around your house and look for at least one thing that you have maybe two of and decide that, that that's going to be a collection that you start. Because if you like to shop for vintage or thrift or go into antique, it's so much more fun if you have at least one thing that you're looking for. And it gives you a little bit of a purpose and a little bit of a direction. And so you're kind of looking primarily for that when you're scanning the, the aisles. You know, you'll see other cool things too, and you'll find those. But it just makes it so much more fun to have one thing that you're looking for. It's a little bit of a treasure hunt. So I'm, I'm going to say that's my homework assignment. I have two kids. Should I start a collection? Oh man. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe two constitutes a, an adequate collection. And... Yeah. I think I'm done with that collection, but it's, it's my most prized. <laughs> um, so where can people find you? I know you've been in some recent publications lately as well. Tell us. Okay, sure. Well, yeah, I'm, obviously I'm on Instagram at not a minimalist and I have a website, not a minimalist.com. There's not a whole lot of content there yet. Um, more recently I'm in the, the new issue of flea market home and living which is on stand September the 24th. It's a really great magazine. I'm giving some tips in there, how to display sort of on maximalist uh, style, how to, how to make that work in, in vintage. That's my most recent one. If you, if you look back in some other issues, I got to be in the June Country Living magazine with one of my collections. And I've been in flea market style a couple of times. And in the most recent issue of that magazine, I... I took everybody on a little trip to uh, a day trip to Guthrie, Oklahoma, which is a really great uh, small town that was actually the original capital of Oklahoma. And so it has some amazing old buildings and a whole bunch of really, really fun uh, antique stores. Amazing. It's so exciting that you're getting so much recognition for something that you love and that you've just started from pure passion and for an outlet. It's been great. It's been so much fun. I've met so many collectors and um, fellow vintage designers and things on, uh, I honestly have trouble calling myself a designer. Everyone calls me that. And I'm like, I guess that I'm, I am a designer in, in some regards, but I still have trouble applying that term to myself, but <laughs> it's been so fun connecting with all these folks, uh, on Instagram. And it's crazy how Instagram can, what it can do because this, all of these all of these things are strictly because I made that account. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate all the tips and guidance that you gave us. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? No, I don't think so. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun talking about everything. Great. Well, we appreciate your time and we want to encourage you guys to uh, follow us on Instagram as well, as well as Daniel. Um, you can find us on Instagram at homeschooled podcast, or you can visit our website, homeschooledpodcast.com. And on there, we will have all our homework assignments as well as the uh, recaps of the episodes and show notes and all that stuff. So plenty of ways to get involved in the show. Make sure you guys are following along and hit us up in the messages anytime you want. And we'll do our best to incorporate them into the show. Yeah. And if you want to test your knowledge that Daniel just gave us, stay with us for Study Hall. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want extra credit, then subscribe, share and rate us. Skip to the next episode for your pop quiz and review. Class is dismissed.